Good evening, everybody. Oh, we're going to try this again because I see about 100 or so people in the room. My math may be bad. I'm a little under the weather. We're going to try this one more time, maybe two or three if you don't get it right this next time, okay? We ready? You sure? Good evening, everybody. That was like 50% better. See, what we're doing right here is a call and response, all right? I'm reaching out to you, and I want you to reach back out to me. So I think this third time is going to be the charm. What do you think? I feel it. I really feel it in my spirit. Good evening, everybody. That was the one. The ancestors was like, okay, we're up. We're ready to go. Welcome to Winthrop Rockefeller's Foundation's second annual Story Slam for Equity. Give it up, y'all. Now, this is very untraditional. I have a cough drop in my mouth. Uh, I performed at the Arkansas Black Hall of Fame on Saturday. And for the past, yes, give it up for the Arkansas Black Hall of Fame. I am so thankful to be mics because my voice is shot. I sound a little bit like a Bearstein bear, but that's okay. I'm here because even though I've lost my voice, I have not lost my passion for equity, and I'm so happy to be here with you tonight. I'm a native Arkansan. I'm a poet. I'm a fiber artist. I'm an activist, and I'm so happy to be here with you. And tonight wouldn't be possible without the tireless work of the staff from the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation. So if you're in the audience, if you're standing, please stand up, wave your hand. We have waves, we have waves, we have stands. Give it up a little louder for them, okay? I want to say thank you, and for everybody to know, we are in this space because they have put together a fabulous program to facilitate where we can share our stories. So thank you, thank you, thank you. You'll be seeing more of them later tonight. So for the next hour or so, we will be embracing R, as in Arkansas. Somebody say Arkansas. Arkansas. Somebody say Arkansas. Arkansas. Y'all sound so good. Our equity, our history our power, and our future. And uh, just because I have the microphone, I want to take the liberty to recognize two Arkansans who have been very important to my life. Uh, The first of which who orders everything that I do with my art and my activism is my late father, attorney Christopher C. Mercer Jr. Y'all give it up for my daddy. He was a civil rights attorney, uh, just a giant of a man. And I also want to recognize uh, recently uh, the late representative attorney, John Walker Sr. Y'all give him a round of applause. He passed away just two days ago. Uh, So I worked with both of them in their law offices as a young woman. And I witnessed firsthand their kindness and their commitment to the community. And it is their divine knowledge and example that sows into my work as an artist and an activist. And they have definitely been laying the groundwork for what equity looks like in Arkansas. That same spirit is also evident in Governor Winthrop Rockefeller. Y'all give it up for That's why we assemble here, right? So tonight, when you feel the spirit of these men, of people who have touched your lives, your grannies, your heroes, the governor, the storytellers, we want you to use the hashtag OUR, as in AR Equity 2025, and Winthroping that you'll see here floating on the screen with two Ps to be grammatically correct, of course, right? Uh, through the night. And you can also go to wrfoundation.org to see the amazing work that they're doing and programming around equity. Now, the philanthropic legacy of Winthrop Rockefeller continues with the foundation as they relentlessly pursue social, ethnic, racial uh, equity for all Arkansans. And we want you to think about what will equity look like? Equity will exist when what? When we treat each other with respect, when we have access to public education that's not marred with politics or profit, when we have access to medical care, when we have civil discourse with the perceived adversary. Equity is a journey and we know that this work is not easy. And many say that it cannot be done, but we believe that it can be done. 
Y'all is on point, audience. Let me tell you how on cue you are, okay? No laugh track, no clap track. I'm here for you, all right? Now, doing the work and making it happen is what the legacy of Governor Winthrop Rockefeller is all about. And it's evident in one of his favorite poems, which I appreciate because I am a poet, by Eckhart Albert Guest, titled, It Couldn't Be Done. And this is going to be our guiding force through the evening tonight. Tonight, we have five phenomenal story slammers that are going to share their obstacles and their triumphs with building equitable lives for themselves, their families, and their communities that raised them up in Arkansas. So our first story slammer is an active participant on many boards, community philanthropy projects, and the leg in Governor Rockefeller's legacy. Somebody said, oh, you'll never do that. At least no one has ever done it. But he took off his coat and he took off his hat. And the first thing we knew, he'd begun it. I want y'all to please give a warm welcome to the grandson of Governor Winthrop Rockefeller, Winthrop P. Rockefeller Jr. Put your hands together, y'all. Good evening. Well, I'm going to tell you first off that this is not my comfort zone. <laughs> I was not yet born when my grandfather was governor, as I'm sure you can tell. Um, since I never had the opportunity to meet my grandfather, he was always that larger-than-life character, that, that person who... I'd heard stories from people, and that's one of the many blessings that I have, is that people are always willing to tell me stories and their experiences of my grandfather. It's wonderful. But I didn't know him. I know the type of person he was, and the things he did from, again, stories, history books. But more importantly, those things did tell me, that it gave me insight on the type of person he was as far as his core beliefs. And the can you imagine coming into Arkansas at that time? The, the climate, the, not only with the obvious barriers of wealth and whatnot, but the racial climate, and to think, I think I can do something here. I'm from New York, they'll relate to me. <laughs> Probably not. Service, empathy, duty, hard work. These are all attributes of my grandfather. As you know, it's the 45th anniversary of the foundation. I have the benefit of serving on that board. My time on the board has given me the opportunity to travel around the state, meet lots of people, people that do the work every day to make Arkansas a better place. Now I know that sounds very vague, generic, let me clarify. People that day in and day out spend their time and their energy lifting people up in areas of poverty, economic stability, education. They, people that have spent their days helping communities become more prosperous. I've met people that spend their time helping students succeed and achieve. I've had the benefit of meeting business leaders who work statewide, as well as in their communities, to build stronger economic foundations. When I think about this, I can't help but think about my grandfather. It's been nearly five decades since his time in Arkansas, and I look at the progress that's been made in our state. Many great strides have, have occurred. Since we're talking about the foundation, They've made many great strides. Initiatives such as Campaign for Grain Level Reading, Ford Arkansas, Moving the Needle, all to help raise Arkansas up. I look back on the things that were important to him and the various endeavors that he began and worked on, and I think about the principles and beliefs that drove him. He was a man that took his own path. I'd like to think I'm that man, but we'll see. Growing up, he was different from his four brothers and, uh, and didn't quite follow the path that was set for him. He was 
Definitely a hands-on learner, something that I can say I was passed down from generation to generation. You know, it's one thing to read a story. It's one thing to hear from another person and their experiences. It's an entirely different thing to know firsthand about something that you want to enjoy or do. This was my grandfather. He definitely was not one to follow the beaten path. He struck his own road, and I think that was good. He didn't want to know what it was like to work in an oil field, having come from a family based in oil. He needed to know firsthand, and hard work was not a problem that he had anything with. So he went to Texas and became a roughneck in an oil field. It was one of the happiest times of his life. And I cannot say that I've worked as a roughneck in an oil field, but I know that personally, the things that I've done with myself or with others on the ground, being involved are the things that give me the greatest happiness. After working in oil fields, he went to worked in a branch of Standard Oil in Europe and, and uh, the Middle East, Northern Africa, and it allowed him to see a lot of the hardships people had to deal with in another part of the world. He saw many of the injustices and cruelty inflicted upon people by various dictators and rulers at the time, and he saw the poverty and hardships that people day in and day out lived with, and he couldn't quite grasp why that was the way it was. So logically or illogically, joining the army was the next best thing. And this was right before World War II about 10 months. Most of his brothers were serving in the military non-combat positions, but he thought he had to do a little more, so he went and served in the South Pacific in combat and left the military. And I tell you these things because it was the foundation for his sense of service, his sense of duty. You know, growing up, I'm gonna tell you a little story about myself. Growing up in the family that I'm from, it's very difficult sometimes to be able to relate to people. And it was the same with my grandfather, and I know my father used to tell me he wanted nothing more than to fit in. Growing up, I, my father wanted me to be grounded. He wanted me to understand that that name was not who I am, that who I am it would be determined by the things that I did. So. It was very important that we were involved in community and and service and that we were able to see not everybody lived like I did. Just as my grandfather and his mother used to show them, everybody doesn't live like you do. But that doesn't mean that you can't understand or have empathy for the things that they encounter and the things that they endure. One example, and granted this is small in comparison, but angel trees, and I'm sure you're all familiar with the angel tree. If not, it's adopting a family at Christmas. I'm 43 years old, so this was 30 years ago. There used to be a development in Little Rock called Highland Park on 12th Street. After a, basically when it got dark, police department wouldn't go into Highland Park. We adopted a family. We would usually adopt three or four, and that was up to myself and my sisters to go with my parents. We picked out the toys, the presents. We, had to, we were responsible for wrapping them and getting them all together. And we were also responsible for taking them to those families. And I remember the first time, it was very difficult for me to understand what I was actually doing. And I mentioned Highland Park because, as I said, police, the police department wouldn't go into Highland Park. Our family, the first family we delivered one year, was in Highland Park. And we went to Highland Park and delivered it, and I, it was the first time that I had seen, actually seen that people don't live like I did. But at the same time, they were very proud. They were very happy people that didn't quite have everything that they wanted that we were able to help. And I understood that was important. If we could, we should. I remember my grandfather used to say, or my grandfather used to tell my father, 
with greater wealth comes greater responsibility. Now granted, as a 12 or 13 year old, I have no idea what that means. However, looking back, I understand. And it was one thing that really stuck out to me. And I, and I looking throughout this process, have, have thought about what it would mean for me, equity. How, did, how can I equate with equity? Lots of people would say, I, I can't. However, I know what it means to being on a level playing field. And these experiences were one of the things that taught me that at an early age. Many people see my, game, my grandfather as a game changer. And in the state of Arkansas, I would agree, he was. He was not like most people in Arkansas, and he was not one that most people could relate to. It's easy to see the issues that might arise trying to relate to anyone in Arkansas coming from the family he did, and I believe his wealth was used against him in every election that he was ever involved in. It was irrelevant to him. He didn't see his wealth as a barrier, but more as a tool to help people and to help the state of Arkansas. Again, I, what a shock it must have been to come to this state. I don't know if anybody ever told him, hey, you can't do this, or you shouldn't do that, because if that was the case, he probably, his, his track record shows he didn't really listen. He was not raised in the South, and therefore he was not a victim of the pressures and the culture of the South. It didn't matter to him. He saw everybody the same way. Looking back at the life of my grandfather, I'm struck with a sense of amazement and wonder. I say that because I can imagine the task before him and the courage it must have taken to do the things that he did at the time he did with the beliefs and values that went against the status quo. I find it ironic that the issues at the forefront of our society today are very similar to those that he faced. So I ask, how do we bring those values and beliefs that he felt to today? There are many times that I've thought about this and have said, can you imagine the courage I must have taken? And I wish that if that time came, that I would have that courage. I can't imagine that with the support of everyone in Arkansas and the backing and strength of the WR Foundation, the next 50 years could be ones that the governors will be proud of. Thank you. Give it up one more again for Win Rockefeller. That's what the old folks say. One more again. Give it up one more again. Just uh, to let you in on a little secret, uh, Hillary Trudell, who's with the Yarn Storytelling, who prepped our storytellers tonight. Give it up for her. She is the keeper of my cough drops. So we have a signal that's like this. That's the signal. So <laughs> when you see the, that's what's going on. Thank you, Hillary. You see how smooth that was? Y'all give it up for Hillary. Keeper of the cough drops. Getting the storytellers ready. I'm so excited for our next storyteller. This, uh, first of all, let me just say, when, where did Wynn go? There he is right there. When you are the definition of Winthroping, like to a T. So when you get your hashtags together, like it don't get no more Winthroping than that right there. So our next storyteller it has joined the Winthrop Rockefeller Institute team in early November of 2018 as a director of development for the Institute. And she has always had a passion for justice with a lift of his chin and a bit of a grin without quitting or doubting. He started to sing as he tackled the thing that could have been done, and he did it. The next slammer is definitely someone who gets things done. Please welcome to the stage, Dr. Joyvin Benton. Hello? All right. So I learned very early on that my voice is important. 
And not only that it is important, but that I could use it to create change and make a difference. I learned this lesson when I was in the sixth grade. So as a sixth grader, I loved basketball. I loved everything about it, knew all the stats, the players, the teams, everything. But unfortunately, at my elementary school, girls were not allowed to play on the basketball courts. The, in fact, the playground was segregated. Girls on one side, boys on the other. And one day, my twin sister and I went home. We were furious. We were so upset because we had been kicked off the basketball court. And so we were telling my dad and how unfair this was and how upset we were. And he said, well, if you're so upset about it, do something about it. And we were like, what? We're just sixth grade girls. What can we do? So we pulled out that handy encyclopedia and started looking at how people had created change over time. And we looked at the civil rights movement and civil rights leaders and what they had done to change the course of history. And so I was learning about the tools and the strategies and techniques that people use to change the course of history. So the next day, my twin sister and I went to school. We were fired up. We were ready. We had our petition in hand. And we walked around. We got parents and teachers and students to sign our petition. And at recess, we started talking to the other girls, gathering them around. And at first, a lot of them didn't really understand or care. You know, they didn't care about basketball like us. But we told them, like, this is about your rights. Like, you should have the same rights as boys. And when we said that, they were like, yeah, that is true. And so they got fired up and they were motivated. And so all these little girls started marching around the playground. And eventually, we ended up uh, in the basketball court. We disrupted the game. We plopped down in protest. And <laughs> we would not leave until the, someone took notice. So eventually, the principal came out. She called my sister and I to her office, and so we went in, and she said, what's going on? Why are you disrupting my school? And we presented our argument and told her what was going on, and to our surprise, she agreed with us. And from that day on, they changed the policy, and girls were allowed to play on the basketball court. Uh, so this early win was, played a significant role in my life. It really showed me that I could make a difference, and it also made me more aware of what was going on in my life and how things affected my world. And so a few years later, I was reading the local newspaper, and there was an article on uh, standardized testing and the achievement gap. And so this was the first time that I had ever really heard this term. And so I'm reading this article, and it's saying how black students are underperforming, and uh, there's a huge gap between uh, the scores of black students and the scores of white, white students. And as I'm reading this article, I don't know how to take it. I'm a little uh, offended, I'm upset, I'm confused, because I always thought of myself as a very high-achieving student, and I never thought that I was less intelligent than anyone else. And this article is kind of saying otherwise. And I just kind of sat on it, I took it, put it in the back of my mind, but I wanted to know more. I wanted to learn more about this. And a few months later, uh, in my ninth grade biology teacher was told us that we would have to do a science fair project. And so I decided that I was going to do my science fair project on the bias of standardized tests. And so I created my own test, and I modeled it after the black intelligence test of cultural homogeneity. And I tailored it to fit uh, ninth grade students' bias in favor of black students. And I gave this test to my uh, ninth grade honors biology class, which was mostly white students. And to their surprise, but not mine, the majority of them failed. And so this was exciting, not because they failed, uh, because I realized there was something deeper to this. There was something more going on. And I wanted to know what was happening. And so throughout my educational journey, I started studying these disparities and really diving deeper into structures and systems and how those systems influence disparities. And I began to learn about intersectionality and looking at things through a lens of race, class, and gender. And so I had the opportunity to do all this 
learning and it really informed my understanding of the issues. I was learning about the connection between health and environment and education. And so after graduate school, I had the opportunity to move back to Arkansas and I started working at a nonprofit, uh, a community organizing and advocacy nonprofit. And I was tasked with raising money for this organization. Uh, this was not an easy task because I had to talk to donors and funders about why they should invest in community organizing in Arkansas. And a lot of them, especially the ones outside of the state who didn't know much about the state, viewed it as a black hole, that nothing could change here, nothing could improve. And so I would have to tell them stories about the, our communities and the people that we work with. And yes, in the beginning, sometimes they didn't really understand what was going on, or they understood what was going on, but they didn't know what to do or how they could make a difference and how they could create change. But once we started educating them on the issues and raising awareness about the issues and then giving them resources and tools and strategies, they could advocate for themselves and they created change in their communities right here in Arkansas. And so over time, I realized that a lot of things that I learned in sixth grade were still true. And even though that sixth grade win was pretty easy um, and these wins today, are not. It's a hard fight. It's, it's, it's a tough job fighting for equity and justice, but it can be done. And the things that I learned is that although some things seem blatantly unfair and inequitable to some people, it's not as, it's not as blatant to, to others. And so you have to educate them on what's going on. You have to raise awareness. But then you have to provide people with resources and tools and strategies so they can advocate for themselves, so they can make changes in their own communities. And I learned that community organizing is a very powerful tool. Um, when people are able to use their collective voice, they're able to make real change. Just think about when I was in the sixth grade, if it was just my sister and I marching around, it wouldn't have been as impactful. But when you had a whole playground of little girls marching around and coming together, people took notice and people uh, had to wake up and see what was going on. And so I learned that we have to demand justice. We have to demand equity. We have to always stand up for what we believe in. And most importantly, I learned that children can lead movements. Children are powerful. We have to make sure that we're providing our children with everything that they need to not only survive, but that they can thrive and become the change agents they were born to be. Thank you. Y'all keep it going for Dr. Joyvin Benton. Give it to her, y'all. Let me get out the way. Joy, when I'm clapping for the rest of my life, girl. Okay. Equity in Arkansas will exist when little girls fight for the right to play basketball with the boys on their court at their elementary school. Ooh, you got me fired up. The little black girl in me is like, yes, I don't even like basketball either, but I want to play. <laughs> Y'all, we're at the halfway point. We're at our third story slammer, and I just feel the equity in the room. Somebody say equity. equity. Somebody say for Arkansas. Somebody say equity. equity. Somebody say for Arkansas. Y'all, I love my state. Now, I am struggling with this throat because I was in a tropical environment last year. I lived in West Africa. It's a little different. It's about 78 degrees. It's a little different. But I feel the equity in this room, and I'm so excited for our next story slammer. 
She's a licensed attorney. She received a Bachelor of Arts in Public Administration from the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville, and she received her Juris Doctorate from the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, William H. Bowen School of Law. She's involved in many civic and social organizations, including the Arkansas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, and she sits on the board for Decarcerate. There are thousands to tell you that it cannot be done. There are thousands to prophesize failure. This next story slammer is going to expand on that concept. Please welcome to the stage attorney Faronda Brasfield. It's too late to leave now, so. I was born into a very large family of landowners. We owned the land that we lived on, the fields that we worked, the well that provided us water, and the fruit and nut trees that often provided shade or a playtime snack. We lived off the land, and in my adolescent mind, we had everything that we needed. I had no concept of poverty, lack, or inequity until I started elementary school. I remember vividly one of the first times I noticed inequity. I believe it was second grade. My superior reading skills had afforded me a place in the coveted superstars group. We sat in the center of the room and we were called on to answer most of the teacher's questions. The bears were the slow readers in the class. They sat all the way at the back of the room in the corner. No matter, they were rarely invited to engage in classroom discussion or dialogue. No matter how much I liked being the center of attention, I still empathized with the embarrassment and shame of my classmates who were pushed to the margins. This was around the time that we moved from our family-owned home in rural Deshaies County to a multifamily housing unit in Stuttgart. To this day, I love Stuttgart, but it had, and it has, its challenges. Equity is one. I oftentimes describe Stuttgart as a plantation. The factories are built as close to people's homes as they can get, and although jobs are plentiful, people work their fingers to the bone with little to show after necessities. Worked much too hard for far too little and discarded when their bodies wear out. It happened to my mom. When she hurt her back at a local factory, the company used workers' compensation laws to fight her claim. Doctors tried to force her back to work, and in the end, she still didn't recover what she was owed. She's disabled for life. Growing up in Stuttgart, educational, economic, and racial equity always eluded people that looked like me. Save the ministers and one or two teachers, I never knew or saw a black professional in Stuttgart. The only black lawyer and doctor that I knew were Claire and Heathcliff Huxtable, and they were on the Cosby Show. As a teen, I began to recognize the effect that the war on drugs was having on the black community. I knew that every race did drugs, but it seemed that African Americans were the only ones that were being arrested for it. There was a crack to cocaine disparity of 100 to 1, and every summer, without fail, the justice system took a wave of black men from the community to work for free in prisons and released a group of black men from prison to try to integrate back into society, many times unsuccessfully. And most of these men had been taken from their families for nonviolent drug offenses, drug dealers and drug addicts alike. I saw the voids that they left behind and it didn't seem fair. Eventually, it was my classmates, it was the bears. Poverty has been puzzling to me. I mean, I can see the effects clearly, but I've always been astounded by how the lack of resources can shape one's life. Poor people are expected to pull themselves up by the straps of boots that they don't own. 
I'm still trying to buy my boots. But I know that I'm fortunate. I grew up in a single parent home with all the love that I could hold and all of the books, magazines, and newspapers that I could read. Ebony and Jet had told me I was beautiful long before the entire world tried to convince me that I wasn't. Because of my educational privilege, I get to see both sides of the coin more clearly. I also hear the counter arguments, count, counter arguments couched in privilege from both black and white folks alike. Why would you pay somebody $15 to flip a hamburger? I went to college, they can too. I now know that my educational privilege is what's saving my life, but too often, many of my poor and minority classmates were labeled as faring less, less well than their white counterparts were. And many of the teachers didn't think that we could achieve. When my mom went to check me in the Stuttgart schools, the counselor pretty much laughed in our faces when we told her that I had scored 98% on last year's standardized achievement test. We had to go home and get proof before she would enroll me in pre-AP classes. While in law school, one of my good friends shared a challenge with me. Along with her hope that I wouldn't cast a negative judgment on her because of it, her brother was facing the death sentence and it was her responsibility to regurgitate their life of loss, trauma, and neglect, and abuse in an effort to save her brother's life. Her brother was one of the bears, pushed to the margins since elementary school, and eventually funneled into the school-to-prison pipeline. I had finals, and I couldn't attend the trial with her, but I knew that I would do something. After graduation, I began working as executive director of the Arkansas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, where I still work to eliminate capital punishment as an available sentence in the state of Arkansas and continue to build on the legacy of Governor Winthrop Rockefeller. In 2017, when the state of Arkansas set eight execution dates to be carried out in 10 days, litigators, other nonprofits, clergy, activists and organizers came together to fight that plan. While lawyers worked day and night on motions and appeals, we collected a quarter of a million signatures from concerned citizens all around the world. The state executed four men, but four were saved. Recently, I opened a law office in Stuttgart as a part of the UALR Bowen Law School's Rural Incubator to increase access to justice in rural areas. I sit on the board of Decarcerate, where we work to end mass incarceration, curb fines, fees and bail, and sharply reduce the use of solitary confinement in our state. I'm on the steering committee of the racial disparities in the Arkansas criminal justice system, where we educate Arkansans on the role that race plays in charges and sentencing, because we know that African Americans are over two times more likely to receive the death penalty than their white counterparts for a capital crime. Race in Arkansas can literally mean life or death. This work gets heavy and the winds are relative and few. But even though inequity is a reality in American life, I keep reminding myself to never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. We stand on the shoulders of giants that did and we can too. Rest in love, peace, and power, Representative John Walker. Thank you. Yo, Feranda, you are Winthroping with like three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Peas. Y'all give it up again for Feranda Brasfield. 
equity in Arkansas will exist when the challenges of obtaining equity are not dismantling our bodies to the point where they're worn and discarded. That was a very beautiful part in your story. And y'all give it up for her mama because she's here in the audience. Hey, mom. So we're going to keep this party moving. We have two more story slammers. Somebody say slam. Slam. Ooh, yes. So our next slammer advocates for the need of folks who have been historically in places of privilege to see the urgency in different stories, addressing that false sense of reality that invite people to complacency instead of community. The dangers that wait to assail you, but just buckle it in with a bit of a grin. Our fourth slammer is going to give us an alternative interpretation of the word strong. Please welcome to the stage, Sarah Bishop. When we moved from New York City to my husband's hometown of Berryville, Arkansas, people had a lot of questions. Friends and colleagues in New York wondered if we had lost our minds, and family and friends in Berryville assumed we had lost our jobs. Neither was true. We were just a young couple trying to figure out how best to live, work, and raise a family. To be honest, there were quite a few other cities and perhaps even a few other states on my list. But John made a compelling case, claiming that all the values I loved most about him, his humility, his devotion to faith and family, his entrepreneurial spirit and his sense of responsibility to his community, were the direct results from growing up in Berryville. Isn't that what we want for our own kids? Unfortunately, we were never really able to test his hypothesis. Three months into our move, there was an accident. While leveling some fields for new chicken houses out in rural Carroll County, John was underneath a piece of heavy equipment when the emergency brake failed and a 4,000-pound steel bucket fell on his head. He suffered a massive traumatic brain injury that involved 30 days in ICU, 84 days in rehab, and one fatal pulmonary embolism. His death left me pregnant and widowed with four small children to raise as a single mom in a state I had literally just moved to with no job, and a half a million dollar medical bill. For the first time in my life, I wasn't working for a cause. I was the cause. Yet despite experiencing so many of the same conditions that often lead to crippling poverty and illness for the people whose stories I had shared in my nonprofit work, I would come to avoid basically everything that other people simply can't. For me, There'd be no meetings with case managers, no medical-related bankruptcy or credit card debt, no problems at school due to untreated trauma and loss, no preventable diseases related to processed food and toxic stress, no impossible choices like paying for childcare or paying for rent. So how would I do it then? Well, the funny thing is, no one ever bothers to ask. Instead, when people hear my story and meet me today, remarried to a wonderful man with four happy, healthy children, a great job, and financial security, they make sense of what happened through a familiar narrative of success that points straight to my individual moral character. You must be so strong. This tiny little statement that assigns so much worthiness and respect to me and my family packs a devastating punch 
to the thousands of Arkansans struggling to overcome the stigmas and, and barriers of their surroundings. So let's be clear on what we really mean when we give a character trait such as inner strength full credit for overcoming a crisis such as mine. Inner strength was the half a million dollar medical bill I never paid because my husband was 100% covered by Arkansas workers' compensation at the time of his accident. It was the ability to move four times within one year from New York City to the rural South and never have to worry about how we would afford the rent, find a good school, or secure a fair loan to purchase a new house. Inner strength was the full-time nanny I was able to hire that provided stability for the kids and time and space for me to prioritize my own physical and mental health. It was the generational wealth transfers and social connections of friends and family that led to new businesses and income-producing investments. It was the advanced degrees paid in full by parents and grandparents that allowed me to secure flexible and meaningful employment as an instructor at the University of Arkansas. <laughs> but without life insurance, masked as inner strength, there's no way I could have pursued a career that I loved without the financial burden of raising four kids on instructor salary alone. You know, somewhere I once read that we don't acknowledge or critique systems when we're enjoying their fruits. And 10 years ago, I most certainly could not foresee how such a vast network of systems and safety nets would bear so much fruit to my family, yet so little to others struggling with such similar uncertainty, tragedy, and loss. Yet we are held up as symbols of strength and determination in our community, while others are marginalized, criminalized, and ignored. Because that's how the familiar narrative of worthiness works in this country. Unless we, who are furthest from the pain, begin to reflect on why that's the case and flip the script on our own stories of wealth and success. Now, it is no secret that I moved here reluctantly, persuaded by a young man who had deep gratitude for a community that shaped his sense of purpose and belonging. But today, I remain here proudly, convinced that it is, it is here, in Arkansas, where we can powerfully disrupt the mythology about who deserves what, but only if the honest and courageous stories about poverty and oppression are met with equally honest and courageous stories about wealth and advantage. Thank you. Y'all give it up for Sarah one more time. <clears throat> I told Sarah at rehearsal on Monday, I was like, I need you to go talk to all the white people, okay? I want you to gather them up. I want you to sit them down, those who are a little out of touch, and just be like, look, brother and sister, and I'm here for you. Let me explain this to you, okay? We do not acknowledge or critique systems when we are bearing their fruit. We do not acknowledge or critique systems when we are bearing their fruit. Okay, what a beautiful way to talk about privilege in your story. And you are strong, but in a way that maybe you didn't know you were. So Sarah, I acknowledge you. That was so beautiful, y'all. We're going to get you on a tour to talk to everybody, okay? We need you to talk to them. All right, y'all, our last slammer. Somebody say slam. Yeah. Somebody say equity. Yeah. Somebody say Arkansas. Arkansas. That's how my niece said, are you going back to Arkansas today? She's five. She's allowed. So our last story slammer, y'all, we're rounding off the night with a phenomenal person. He starts with people where they are to connect them to resources that they need to build a better future for themselves, their families, and their communities. Just take off your coat and go to it. 
Just starting to sing as you tackle the thing that cannot be done and you'll do it. Rounding off the last line of guest poem, a testament that it can truly be done. And this person, he's doing it well, okay? Please welcome to the stage, Arlo Washington. How's everybody doing? They said a better community couldn't be done. The poor are lazy. They don't like to work. They keep having babies to get more welfare money. They buy stuff they don't need and can't afford, like big screen televisions, etc. They abuse the social system. They don't value education. Take away the services, and the poor will be forced to be productive like the rest of us. We found jobs. We got through school. We work hard and budget. We've gotten ahead. Why can't they? This is the narrative we often hear. Generational poverty is poverty that is inherited across generations. A mentality that there is no way for one to get out of poverty. Hopelessness is the key factor in creating the cycle from one generation to the next. Breaking the cycle of generational poverty. They said a better community couldn't be done. My name is Arlo Washington. I'm the founder and president of People Trust Community Loan Fund. I understand the phrase by the Reverend Jesse Jackson, keep hope alive. Growing up in a single parent home, experiencing generational poverty and hope is all we had. My mother had me when she was 16 years old and had to drop out of, out of school in the 10th grade to take care of me. We lived in a low-income housing project. I was listening to Wynn talk about Highland Park. We called it Highland Court. My mother instilled in me to pray, work hard, and put all my trust in God. I can remember being in, a in grade school and kids would crack jokes because I had on cheap shoes and our car was raggedy. We were poor, was the narrative. By the time I turned 11, my mother had two other children, and still not married, and still in the projects. It seemed all hope for a better tomorrow was gone. I started working at age 14, a summer job for low-income youth. I can remember the first time I was able to help my mother pay the bills, the pride I felt gave me joy. And in my heart of hearts, we were sure to escape the poverty that plagued us. My mother graduated from Philander Smith College, and we were on our way. So we thought, but two weeks before my high school graduation, she passed away with cancer. My world was turned upside down, and I was lost and didn't know what to do next. She never got the home she always wanted, and I wasn't going to be able to make her proud and lift her out of poverty. Excuse me.
excuse me. How will I change the narrative? Where do I begin? How do I go from here to breaking the cycle of generational poverty? Not just for me, but for the community. They said a better community couldn't be done. As a child, I've always sought to carve out my own path and work for myself. I can remember what inspired me to become a barber. It wasn't always in the budget for me to get a haircut. So I would go to Royale's Barbershop and sweep hair in order to get a free cut. One day, another customer came in a hurry and offered me $30 to go in front of me. After I took the money, <laughs> I thought to myself, this barber business ain't so bad after all. And I love the connection Mr. Roy had with the community. We learned so much being there, sitting and listening to all the stories and community concerns. Barbers are the cornerstones of the brick buildings and the pillars of the community. And this was a sure way for me to create a better future for myself, my family, and help my community along the way. I graduated Barber College in 1997. I wanted to start my own barbershop, but couldn't get a loan because I had no credit. Couldn't borrow from family because everyone was in need and poor. In 2000, I opened my first barbershop, my first business, with a $1,750 student loan check I had received from the university. And a friend loaned me a chair. They said a better community couldn't be done. As I made money, I reinvested back into my business. One week, another chair. The next week, another station. Until, one, until the shop was full with nine employees and business was booming. So I did it again and again. 27 employees later, I want to do more. How can I better my community? And what does that look like? I know, I reinvest the money from the barbershop and we will open a barber college. Get it licensed, accredited, and federally funded in efforts to offer quality education, train and place barbers throughout the community. It would be a career for some and a stepping stone for others. What it did for me, it could do for them. 2008 was the birth of Washington Barber College. In 2009, Arkansas became a credit desert with the eradication of payday lenders, recidivism rates, and poverty was on the rise. Hearing the stories of generational poverty and how unbanked families were, su were suffering to survive, seeing and knowing the need for access to affordable credit and capital in low-income communities for individuals and small businesses just like mine prompted me as a small business owner to launch People Trust in efforts to bridge the gaps to creating generational wealth in low-income communities, in the same low-income communities that I grew up in and now made my living. People Trust is a nonprofit community development financial institution certified by the U.S. Department of Treasury with a mission to provide financial products and services to communities that would not otherwise receive the said opportunities in efforts to create access for those who need it most we launched our fully automated online lending platform and have made over 200 
consumer and small business loans to borrowers with little or no credit. Experiencing generational poverty provided job training to over 500 individuals, of which 50% were felons, and 15% have gone on to open their own businesses and employ others. Breaking the cycle of generational poverty is what I feel I did and what I always was trying to do for my family, my mother, and now my community. In this is a little story about four people. Name everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done. And everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought that anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. They said a better community couldn't be done. Well, I guess we'll have to keep proving them wrong. Thank you. Arlo up here trying to take us to church. <laughs> Sir, it is not Sunday, but amen, and amen, and amen. Yo, y'all give it up for Wynn, Joyvin, Veranda, Sarah, Arlo. I am just so moved by how courageous they were to share their narratives, even when Veranda was like, it's too late to pull out. <laughs> Girl, your story was phenomenal. And so now we want to bring all of that together to connect it back to the root of this, and that's the legacy of Governor Winthrop Rockefeller. I want you to join me in welcoming the fourth president and CEO of WRF. Please give a rousing round of applause to Dr. Sharice West Scantleberry. Our stance, my real goal is for you to read the governor's favorite scripture. And that's our history. 45 years of grant making in the state of Arkansas. We are grateful for the opportunity. We are grateful for all that we've been able to contribute to. Also as part of that history, Crystal was absolutely outstanding in, uh, yes. <laughs> was absolutely outstanding in reading the governor's favorite poem throughout her introduction. So I'm going to actually read it to you in its entirety. And it's called It Couldn't Be Done by Edgar Al Albert, I was going to say Edgar Allan Poe, by, <laughs> by Edgar Albert Guest. Somebody said it couldn't be done, but he with a chuckle replied that maybe it couldn't, but he would be the one. Who wouldn't say so till he tried? So he buckled right in with a trace of a grin on his face. If he worried, he hit it. He started to sing as he tackled a thing that couldn't be done, and he did it. Somebody scoffed. <laughs> oh, you'll never do that. At least no one has ever done it. But he took off his coat and he took off his hat, and the first thing we knew, he'd begun it. 
with a lift in his chin and a bit of a grin, without doubting or could it, he started to sing as he tackled a thing that couldn't be done, and he did it. There are thousands to tell you it cannot be done. There are thousands to prophesy your failure. There are thousands to point out to you one by one the dangers that wait to assail you. But just buckle in, buckle in with a bit of a grin. Take off your coat and go to it. Just start to sing as you're tackling that thing that cannot be done and you'll do it. So as we pursue equity in Arkansas, which is our direction, our power is in our grantees and in the partners that you just heard from tonight. Our power is in our narrative. Our power is investing in, in the movements, in the disruption, in the systems change that you heard this evening. And our future is in that as well. And we have naysayers. Our direction is equity. Our mission is to relentlessly pursue education, economic, social, ethnic, and racial equity in Arkansas. And already we have folks saying it cannot be done. But you know what we finna do? <laughs> we gonna buckle in with a bit of a grin. We gonna take off our coat and go to it. And we gonna sing as we do that thing that cannot be done and we gonna do it. Thank you. I need some water. I need to be baptized in the equity juice right now. It's so beautiful. So y'all are coming to a close at our program. Like, what is this big thing in her hand? Okay, I know some of you saw it in the lobby. And I see so many wonderful, familiar, beautiful faces tonight. I see so many new faces tonight. And I want to encourage all of us to take an opportunity to keep the conversation going. Equity will happen in Arkansas when? What will that be? What does that look like to you? What is that conversation that you can have with somebody else? So as you exit this place, don't leave too soon. Stop by our station, fill that out, take a photograph so we can capture the moment, so we can have that data, and we can have some talking points so we can begin to take this conversation statewide. Because storytelling, narrative, community is going to get us. We look. I'm finna smile, I'm finna make a coat so I can take it off and grin and do it. You hear what I'm saying? <laughs> I got one in the back, what's up, all right? So I wanna thank all of you for being here tonight. Let's give one more round of applause for our Story Slammers who did such an amazing job. One more round of applause for Hillary Trudell from The Yarn. Keep those hands going for the WRF Foundation staff who brought us in this space to tell our stories. And one more big one for you for showing up and caring about what goes on in Arkansas. Thank you and good night.